We're continuing in our series on the book of Philippians as we listen to these words of the Apostle Paul written from prison to some of his friends in a church that he helped start some 10 years prior to his imprisonment. Well, back in 2017, the number one ranked Alabama Crimson Tide football team came to A&M, and they left with a victory. They scored uh, eight more points than Texas A&M did, and of course, head coach Nick Saban was not at all happy with the performance of his team. Afterwards, he spoke to the media, and he said these words, we didn't play well tonight, and you have to give A&M a lot of credit. I'm trying to get our players to listen to me instead of you guys, meaning the media. All that stuff you write about how good we are, all that stuff they hear on ESPN, it's like poison. It's like taking poison, like rat poison. And if you are a sports fan, no doubt you hear how the media likes to banter back and forth with the rat poison they're giving his team this week. But I like what he was saying here. He is trying to get the best performance out of his team. And they're hearing lots of other voices about how good they are, and he's fearing that this isn't going to help them in their performance on the field, that they'll just kind of take the foot off the accelerator, as they did with A&M that game, and not do their very best. Well, they walked out with a victory that week, went on to win the national championship that year. But I liked what he was saying there, because I think there's many voices that we can be listening to. In fact, Paul, writing from prison to his friends in Philippi, is worried about this very thing. You see, he's been encouraging them to to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they hear other voices besides his, and it's troubling him. You see, he, he understands that some of these other voices will take their gaze off of Jesus and put it back on themselves. And so this seasoned follower of Jesus knows that there is something so potentially harmful that if it gets in your system, will have spiritually fatal or lethal consequences and will keep you from being able to glory in Christ Jesus. He wants them to glory in Christ, but other people are wanting them to glory in their performance. And so we're going to call our study today, The Surpassing Greatness of Knowing Christ Jesus. We're going to be in this passage this week and next week as well. So today we're going to cover just the first eight verses, but would you pray with me and ask the Lord to open our hearts as we uh, dig into this passage and see what the Lord has for us. Lord, we thank you for inspiring these words, the Apostle Paul, that he wrote to his friends, and for preserving them so that we get to hear them today. And just as he was seeking to encourage them, we pray that you would encourage us through these words as well. Help us to understand the original context and what was going on there so that we can better understand how to apply this this, uh, passage to our context today. Would you be pleased to, to meet us, we pray, and to change us and to transform us, to make us more like Christ, that we would glory in him. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul starts out this passage in chapter 3 with these words. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I had to chuckle when I read this because we're just halfway through this book and he says finally as if he's close to the end of his book. And I know someone's thinking, is that where you pastors get it from? (laughs) You say finally and then you got another half hour worth of material. I can either confirm or deny that, but if it's a reality, I'm going to blame it on him. But I've never heard of anyone doing anything like that. (laughs) He says finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he's going to spend this chapter and the first part of next chapter talking about a a clear and present danger to their spiritual life. But then he's going to get to chapter 4, and he's going to pick this theme back up and say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. He's going to camp out on that theme. But right now, he's worried about some spiritual rat poisoning that his his friends are exposed to. So he says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Someone says, whoa, Paul. That seems to come out of the blue and a little over the top, don't you think? This is some very strong language. It doesn't seem to kind of jive with the Paul that we've been listening to all along. But see, Paul has already told them earlier in chapter 1 that he is working for their progress and their joy in the faith. And he knows that this is a danger that they're exposed to. He wants them to be able to, to glory in Christ. But if they listen to what these false teachers are saying, they're going to lose hold of Christ. And he'll say in chapter 3 later on, Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. See, Paul has been commissioned to tell people about the good news of Jesus how apart from their works or any merit of their own, they can receive the forgiveness of God simply as a free gift given to them in Christ. But there are other people coming along after Paul starts these churches, and they start just suddenly teaching a a different message. They're basically saying Paul had it mostly right. And he's, of course, speaking of the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers were Jews like Paul, who claimed to follow Jesus the Messiah, but unlike Paul, insisted that to be a true follower of Jesus the Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, one must zealously perform what are called the works of the law. So what are these works of the law? There were rituals that made Israel distinct from the nations. Things like keeping the Sabbath or holy days, eating kosher foods only, and practicing circumcision. In fact, so dialed in were they to this issue of circumcision that they are called by him the circumcision party in the book of Galatians. You see, their logic seemed to go like this. If if God made a covenant with Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision as a sign of that covenant, and if Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham, then these new followers of Jesus must be circumcised too. Do you get their logic? If they want to follow the Jewish Messiah, then they need to become, in essence, Jewish the book of Acts tells us really the first example of how this came up. Chapter 15, Luke writes these words. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It was that bald face. Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus you've got to be circumcised and then you can be saved. And you think this would be something kind of easy to ignore. But even the Apostle Peter fell into this error. In the book of Galatians, we're told of a time when Peter went to Antioch, and he was hanging out with some non-Jewish Christians, and he was having table fellowship with them, something a Jewish person would never do. But he understood that in Christ, these people are received by faith alone. And so he began to have meal, covenant meals, fellowship meals with them, until some Judaizers showed up. And then Peter withdrew from fellowshipping with these uncircumcised Gentile Christians. And Paul said this in the book of Galatians, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, Paul understood that Peter, in making this error of withdrawing from fellowship, was insisting that they live like Jews, that they needed to be circumcised before he could have real fellowship with them. So the gospel, according to the Judaizers, went something like this. You need Jesus plus works of the law, and then you can have salvation. 
The gospel according to the apostles was this. Jesus plus nothing that you can do equals salvation. And the gospel according to many moralists today is often like what the Judaizers insisted upon. They may not insist on circumcision, but many people today will say, well, you need Jesus plus you need to read the King James only version. Or you need Jesus plus you've got to go to this kind of church. Or you need Jesus and you've got to give money to the poor. You, you need Jesus and just fill in the blank. We hear it all the time. Back when Heather and I were students here, we were part of a campus ministry that, that put pressure on us to, to go on a mission trip over spring break. And the subtle implication was, if, if you're spiritual, you will do this. It became a litmus test of your commitment to Christ. And so suddenly, Jesus plus something equals your salvation. But of course, Paul and the apostles taught that the wages of sin is death. What we earn by our effort is death, spiritual separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Gifts are something that are given freely. They're not earned. If I told my friend Jimmy over here that I want to give him my iPad as a free gift, but I want him to give me a couple hundred bucks for it, I mean, that's a confusing message, right? It's either a gift or either I charge him for it. The same way, salvation in Christ is a free gift. We can't earn it. And so Paul says in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Let me line it up like this, help this helps us see it visually. He says, look out three times. If I just say to someone, hey, look out for that, probably like, oh, okay, it's not a big deal. Or look out, look out, you know, maybe I got your attention. But if I say, look out, look out, look out, it's getting your attention right away. And so he's calling them to look out for three dangers. And I put the transliteration of the Greek up here because in the Greek, each word starts with the, the letter kappa, the, the K in Greek. So he says, look out for the, the kunas, the dogs. Look out for the kakas ergatos, the evildoers. Look out for the katatomain, the mutilation. And so, start out. He says, look out for the dogs. And when we hear the word dog, I mean, it could be like either in a good sense or a bad sense, right? You know, some people are like, yo, dog, what's happening? You know, it's not a bad thing. Or if you're a Georgia Bulldog fan, you would say, go dogs, right? Or you might call someone a dirty dog if they're sneaky and whatever. But here, Paul's using a phrase that was often used by the Israelites to talk about non-Israelites, the Gentile world outside of the holy nation of Israel. And they were just compared to dogs, and dogs in those days were not cute, cuddly little pets. They were scavengers. They were wild animals. They would oftentimes eat uh, pets that you wanted to have, sheep and chickens and things like that. And so these Jewish people who claim to follow Jesus, saying you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to follow Jesus, think they're part of the people of God. But Paul here is flipping the script and saying they're really the outsiders. So he says, look out for them. Look out for the evildoers. See, these Judaizers thought that they were doers of good. But according to Paul, they were actually doers of evil. Why? Because they were taking people's eyes off of Christ and putting them on things that they could do. They were diminishing the work and the value of what Christ did for us on the cross and instead putting their eyes upon what they could do in the flesh. And then he says, look out also for the mutilation. That's how it reads literally in the, in the original um, it's translated several different ways. Those who mutilate the flesh in my ESV. By insisting that followers of Jesus be circumcised in order to be saved, Paul brands these Judaizers as those who simply mutilate 
the flesh, like those in pagan religions who tried to get the attention of the gods by cutting and bleeding their flesh. So Paul goes on after giving them that warning and says to them, for we are the circumcision, which is really astounding if you stop and think about it. He's talking to primarily Gentile Christians who are not circumcised. And he says, we, Paul the Jew and them, are the true circumcision. That is, they are the the covenant people of God, now that they follow Jesus. And so let me lay it out like this. We are the, uh, the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That first phrase, he says, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. And I thought of that verse when Jesus said, the hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Paul probably here is intentionally contrasting those who worship God by the Spirit of God as opposed to those who worship God by the rituals of man. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. That is, we make much of Jesus. And we glory and we boast in him, not in our own accomplishments. And we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. It's an interesting phrase. We're going to camp out on it here for a second. I've shared with you this uh, article I read one time about Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City. And it had this headline where he's quoted as saying, I've earned my place in heaven. And I thought, I'm going to click on this and see what he says. The subtitle says, the former New York City mayor is confident that his, his latest $50 million gift initiative would, um, I can't even read my own writing here, initiative would, has secured him a happy afterlife. That's what it's saying. My print here on this screen is really, really small. And so he's given... $50 million for a gun control initiative, and he thinks this has earned his way into heaven. So this is what he said. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. So if we use the criteria that Paul just talked about, he's not worshiping God by the Spirit of God. He's not glorying in Christ Jesus. And he's putting confidence in his own flesh. That is what he can do. The good news, according to Michael Bloomberg, is that if you're rich and successful like me and give enough money to causes you believe in, then you don't even have to stop for an interview on your way into heaven. God's just going to welcome you in. So, Paul says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. So you see there, by these words that are highlighted, he stresses the confidence of the flesh over and over and over again here. So he says, if you want to talk about performance, let me pull out my trophy case. Let me show you what I've accomplished. And so he says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. This is exactly what the Torah commanded. And couples had a child back in the day. They were commanded on the eighth day to bring their child to the leaders of the community, or to the temple, if you lived in Jerusalem, to have your child circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul says, look, I was circumcised. Not only was I circumcised, I was circumcised on the eighth day. If people want to make a big deal about circumcision, I can make a big deal about that. He says, I'm of the people of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the two prestigious and faithful tribes of Israel that stayed faithful to God while the other ten tribes went off in apostasy and rebellion. 
And so he says, look, I'm from one of the, the prestigious tribes of Israel. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was raised in a God-fearing Hebrew home. We said prayers in Hebrew. We read scripture in Hebrew. We gave blessings in Hebrew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. All of these things are talking about his heritage. And then he goes on and says, as to the law, a Pharisee. You know, the, 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 the Torah, by some estimates, by scholars, contains 613 commands that God gave to the, to the nation of Israel. And the group of Pharisees at the time of Jesus were known as the most scrupulous doers of the law. In fact, they had the 613 laws. What they would do is they would add even extra laws around those to make sure that they didn't break them. Everyone looked at them as the cream of the crop. In fact, one place in the Gospels, Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees if you want to get into heaven. So he said, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the best that there is. I'm the holiest of the holy in the nation of Israel. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. <laughs> I went around arresting Christians, throwing them into jail. In fact, I presided over the first execution of a Christian. That's how zealous I was. That's how much I thought I was in the right. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. <laughs> no one could look at my life and say, Paul, he's a big screw-up. <laughs> he, he, he's a sinner. He says, I was, I was blameless. Now, he himself would not say that he was sinless. But when he sinned, he did what the law prescribed, which was to offer sacrifices at the temple. And so here he's, he's putting together his trophy case. He says, if anyone wants to boast about their performance, I can beat them. If we're in a class competing against one another, I'm the valedictorian. No one was better than I was at performance. Paul was one of those people whom Jesus said, were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And that was Paul until he met the resurrected Christ. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians, his hometown. If he found anyone there who followed Jesus, he had the authority to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and have them put on trial and executed the way he tells it in the book of Acts is like this. He says, I journeyed to Damascus with authority, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, he's speaking to King Agrippa here. He's actually on trial and he's giving his defense. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to, to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was the name he used as he was with the Gentiles. He heard a voice saying to him in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me, and to those in which I will appear to you, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, in his self-righteousness, on his way to round up Christians, 
met Jesus in all what the Old Testament scriptures describe, the Shekinah glory of God. And he was blinded for a time because of the brightness of this encounter. But this converted him. And Jesus not only had grace and mercy upon him so that his sins would be forgiven, he commissioned him to be his right-hand man, his primary ambassador to the Roman Empire. So Paul says, look, I had this trophy case of good deeds. I had this trophy case of reasons why I should be confident in the flesh. But he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, when I looked at everything that I had accomplished, the privileged position that I had, and then I looked at Christ, there is no comparison. He goes on in verse 8 and says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. My friends, did you get that? I count everything, everything I've accomplished, my trophy case, my resume, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That word translated in my version here as surpassing worth has this idea of that which is excellent and prized. I just looked up a couple of the translations and they translate it like this. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. The superior value of knowing Christ. The infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, the greatness of, of knowing Christ Jesus. I might put it like this, the, tre- the, the treasured prize of knowing Christ Jesus. And our friend Scott Sauls, author and pastor, put it like this, there is simply nothing better, nothing better than knowing and being known by Jesus Christ, nothing. Paul counts everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this question, my friends. Are you experiencing the surpassing greatness of personally knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? I'm not talking about in the past. I'm not talking about what might happen in the future. I'm talking about right now in the present. Are you experiencing this surpassing worth, this prized treasure of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? I'm not asking if you know things about Jesus. I'm not asking me if you can tell me your your favorite parable or favorite miracle he did. I'm asking if you know Christ personally. This is what Paul is driving at. He's not interested in making people religious. He wants to see the gospel make people new. People who can grow deep in their knowledge of who Christ is. And so when he talks about all that he had, all that he thought was gain, he now sees it as loss, as loss, as loss, that he may gain Christ. He's thinking in accounting terms here. So we, if we put a profit loss sheet up here. We might put it like this. Paul's before Christ confidence in his flesh had all these things listed that he thought were to his profit, that were to his gain. And he thought that they added up to salvation. Like the mayor from New York City, if, if anyone is going to go to the front of the line and get in without an interview, it's going to be Paul. But after Christ, his confidence in the flesh changed. Everything he thought was an asset, was, was to his profit, he now looks at and sees it as a liability. He has it all up, and he says it comes to nothing. Actually, less than nothing. It, it's actually a loss. It's debt. 
piled upon debt. But when he looks at his assets now, what's to his profit? It's nothing but Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. You see, Jesus has become his all in all, his everything. And that's why he can look at everything he accomplished and said, it is nothing. In fact, he calls it rubbish, which is a very, I don't know, sounds British to me, doesn't it? It's rubbish. <laughs> and so I'm going to put another screen up here, and I'm going to ask your permission, or actually not your permission, your forgiveness ahead of time for putting it up here, but we need to talk about what this word rubbish means. In the Greek language, it means dung. It is a uh, kind of a slang word, and we have slang words for that very same thing in our English language, and you can legitimately translate it with those words. I'm just telling you, King James Version puts it like this. Everything that Paul had trusted in, he now counts them but dung. Or Eugene Peterson in his paraphrases called The Message put it like this. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. That's what Paul says. Everything that he had trusted in before is just one stinking pile of dung. So, let me bottom line our study for us so far. Either we can have confidence in ourselves or in Christ. One leads to the deadly poison of self-righteous pride. The other to the priceless treasure of personally knowing the Lord Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King. So let me ask you again, my friends. Where do you place your confidence? Is it in yourself or is it in Christ? Spiritually speaking, you before the Lord, where is your confidence? Is it in the things that you've done? Maybe you were baptized as a baby. Maybe you've been to church all your life, vacation Bible school, memorized a bunch of verses, come to church every week. I'm glad to have you here. But is that where your confidence is? Or is your confidence in Christ? I just finished a book recently called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I don't know if any of you have read this or not, but it's a, it's a fascinating story. I've, I'm hearing people talk about it all over the place, so I'm like, I'm going to get this book, and I, and I listen to it. And let me just say, this, this man overcame so many obstacles. I mean, he was abused as a child, and his mom and, and his two brothers eventually escaped from that. Um, in high school, he experienced severe racism, being the only black kid in a school full of white people. And just the, the scars that he carried from early on in life you wouldn't want to wish on, on your worst enemies. And so his story is really inspiring. And he talks about how uh, he, he, he took responsibility for his life. He, he realized that he's got to make some changes. He went from weighing 315 pounds to getting in shape at 185. He went through Hell Week with the Navy SEALs three times. He went through the Delta Force training once with the Rangers once. I mean, this man was incredible. When he got done being in the, in the service... He went on to run hundreds of races, ultra marathons, some of them 50 miles, some of them 100 miles, to raise money for the children of soldiers who had passed away. This man was incredible and, and very inspiring. And I wrote down some of the things he said just to help inspire my own life. And it's really fascinating to hear this man who came from such a horrible background to, to overcome so much of this. But at the very end of this book, he said something very interesting that caught my attention. He talked about one day appearing before God. 
and being interviewed by God. And God would bring out his, his file folder and he'd pull out these sheets and say, David, this was everything you were supposed to do. And David did more than that. And he says this, David Goggins, even though God knows all, I work my tail off to the point where I want God himself, the one thing that knows all, to be up there in awe of what I am doing. I want to exceed even God's expectations of what he thought I was capable of. I want God to be up there saying, I don't believe it. Not even I saw what David Goggins was capable of. When I heard that, my heart just broke for this man. He overcame so much, and no doubt he's running from so many of the demons of his past, and he serves as an inspiration to, to countless young men. But to envision standing before God and having God say, you've blown me away. Not even I can believe everything that you've done. It's just tragic. I hear Paul in the background saying something like this, confidence in the flesh? Rubbish. Everything is a loss compared to this passing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul once envisioned God looking at him and saying, you did it, you earned your spot. But Paul, by God's grace, came to have his eyes opened. And it's not all about making Paul great. It's not about making David Goggins great. It's not about you and I being great. It's about glorying in Christ Jesus. So spiritually speaking, self-confidence, which is literally translated faith in yourself, is deadly rat poison. And this is what Paul wants them to understand. So just two points of application, my friends, and we'll be done. First of all, let's note that good works can actually be bad news when we trust them before the Lord. Good works are not bad things in and of themselves. It's good to feed the poor. It's good to, to do loving things for other people. But when we trust in them as a reason for merit before the Lord, why God should give us grace, that becomes really bad news. This is the way that Isaiah the prophet put it. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah, as you know, was writing in a very dark time in the nation of Israel, a time when people thought they can live however they wanted to. They would just throw God a bone every once in a while by doing a good work, going to the temple and making the appropriate sacrifice. He says, look, we're trusting in the wrong things. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Augustus Toplady wrote this poem that has become known as Rock of Ages, a wonderful hymn. And in it, he writes these words. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Or how about these words we're going to sing together in just a moment? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, 
that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrificed them to his blood. So that's the first point of application. Let's note that good works can actually be bad news when we trust them before the Lord. And here's the second and final point of application. Let's treasure the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. My friends, it's no small thing that you and I even get to hear the name of Jesus in our ears. And it's no small thing when he, by his grace and kindness, opens our hearts to receive the good news that he has for us. And it's no small thing that even now, you and I have the wonderful privilege of knowing Christ Jesus. In fact, there's this place in the Gospel of John where Jesus basically defines eternal life as knowing him. Chapter 17, this is in the the prayer right before he was crucified. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Many of us think that eternal life begins once we die. Jesus says it begins here right now. It comes when you know my Father and when you know me. That's why we sing songs like this that we're going to sing in just a moment too. And all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. In every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring. We crown him Lord of all. My friends, may you glory in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in yourself, because that's the secret. The secret to finding joy right where you are is experiencing the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ right where you all are. Paul knew that from prison. Paul wants his friends in Philippi who are experiencing intense persecution for following Jesus to know that. And he wants you and I, surrounded by all kinds of rat poison, to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So, my friends, may God grant you the grace to put no confidence in the flesh so that you can experience him, that you can experience the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus.